0: Hey there, thanks for checking out the show. My name's Cole Feth, and this is Deconstructed. On today's episode, we have Matt Rolf. Matt Rolf is a 18-year veteran of the Cameras Police Force, 13-year member of the K-9 Unit, a former AJHL official, and an all-around interesting guy. Uh, we get into a lot of stuff here. Um, we talk about things like the role of police in society, how to train a dog, the role of canine units in policing, and what is de-escalation, and how. what are some tips on how to apply de-escalation to the streets or to the classroom. Oh yeah, and my buddy Dave's on the show. I hope you like it.
1: My guest is matt Rolf. 18 years as an officer 13 as a canine and i can my mom has done ride-alongs with him and she vouches for him so whatever that's worth go. and david's gonna be joining us again david matt thanks for being here no problem thanks for having us Okay, so uh, Matt and I go back, uh, Matt and I and David, actually, we've all met through officiating, but Mm -hmm. I I know Matt is a family friend, as well as just he is a fixture in the community. Uh, He is most known for his vocation, which is policing. Uh, And I'm just kind of curious, Matt, how you just a little bit about your journey and how you became a cop and like what 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 drew you to the profession? You know what
2: I uh, grade 12, I was a gypsy. I had no direction in life. Absolutely none. So I saved up a few bucks and traveled around the world uh, for about a year, came back, worked the oil field like most Albertans do. And then I uh, decided that living in red earth the rest of my life was not uh, a career ambition. So uh, I, I I took what I thought I was good at in life. Uh, and refereeing was one of them at the time. And I uh, thought, you know what, maybe policing is a, a good parallel to officiating. You know, you're, you're taking garbage every day from whether it's coaches or bad guys. I'm like, hey, well, it can't be that much different. And went to some post-secondary, and here I am 18 years later. So that's how I got into it. There's, there was no magical thing. There was no family ties. There was none of that.
1: So, so it sounds like you're a sucker for punishment. Yes. Uh, Tough skin. Perfect. How's that? I, so, <laughs> do you think that 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 was built from officiating, and maybe speak to like where you were as an official? Because you actually got pretty high up there.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I was fortunate. Um, you know, I, I think it all goes back to the guys that mentored me way back in the day. But I got up and did some national and international events, which was fantastic. It was really good. At the time, uh, I think I was doing junior hockey and university level hockey, and um, it just was it seemed like a good fit. And it definitely prepared me, that's for sure. A lot of de-escalation and solving problems on the ice. And you got to put that face on even when you know you're wrong. you got to somehow smooth it over to pretend you're right. And, and, but still having that rapport with, with all 40 people on the ice. So You
3: would mentioned your, your post-secondary track. Uh, maybe for those who aren't familiar with what most police officers end up doing or, or people who are interested in policing go through, can you just walk us through, Matt, what that looked like for you after your uh, year of, of gypsying?
2: Yeah, so um, I went down to Lethbridge Community College. I took my two year policing uh, diploma, I guess, and then started in on my degree through Athabasca University and uh, was doing really well at it. And I started that journey or that portion of my life when I was about 21 or 22. So I was mature and I was treating it like a job. So uh, fortunately, I I panned out well there. And luckily though, I, I was in year two of my studies and I realized that if I don't get a job in law enforcement, I'm going to be just this like Paul Blart mall cop with a really nice piece of paper. So, you know, for those that are looking to get into it, um, I'd put all my eggs in one basket. And if I could do it again, I would get into teaching and do a degree in teaching because you never know whether you're going to get hired or not. It's it's a gamble. Um, And so I had nothing to fall back on. So I was quite fortunate I got into the career that I wanted to. Uh, Because like I said, my fallback plan was short-sighted and it was nothing. So (laughs) I I was fortunate. I was lucky. So
1: I wanted to have Matt on because he's already mentioned the word de-escalation. And that's something that we as teachers know nothing about. And we probably should. So it's something that I want to pick at. Uh, so Matt is going to talk about training dogs selfishly because if anybody has met me and my dogs, oof. Yeah. Uh, but also de-escalation and uh, establishing uh, routines or r- rapport with the community. So We're all going to get in there, but we're going to we're going to mine a little bit deeper on you before we get there. Yeah. Right. My first kind of question, what I'm wondering about is like when I think of getting into policing, I think of the police academy. I'm curious what your experience was going through that police academy, and do you think it? Did you feel prepared? Uh, walking onto the streets, or did you feel like an imposter for the first little bit?
2: You know what, the academy was good. We, we, I did it through the Edmonton Police Service, six months in duration, and uh, it, it seems like a long time, but it's not. You have people from all walks of life that are starting the academy on day one. Some of them have no idea, no background in policing whatsoever. Their green is green, and somehow this training staff in six months have, have to prepare them. So no different than a teacher, and you walk into the classroom day one and the kids they don't care whether it's your first day or your 20th year they have the same level of expectation from you and um, it, it's a big battle i think in any career whether it is teaching or policing but you come out of that scholastic environment and you come into the real world and you know we we have a uniform and people you know we don't have the years of service stitched onto the side of our arms where, where we can say hey guys but I'm day one, take it easy on me. We don't have that luxury and same as teachers, right? So they did prepare us quite well. They, the learning curve within that six months was, was a big one. Uh, I was fortunate through my post-secondary studies, the curve was, it was uphill, but it wasn't as steep as those that this was all brand new stuff, right? But getting on the street, yeah, it, all of a sudden stuff was real. It was, we deal with people in times of crisis. And that's the thing. And it's unfortunate that we don't get to see them at their best, but we have to make them feel comfortable enough to open up to us and move past that crisis point real fast and get into the root of the problem and so that we can offer the proper guidance or solutions or networking so that we can point them in the right direction to help them out.
1: So is that a skill that is explicitly taught or is that something that you kind of just kind of like trial and error? Is it instinct? Like, because as teachers, as you mentioned, we are also social workers. We're psychologists, we're counselors, we're everything. And you are the same, but it's on their worst day and they're adults and they're drunk. So like, is that something they train you in or is it just trial, error and instinct?
2: You know what? I I think a lot of it, um, you know, to make this come full circle is that they're not, typically people aren't going to hire, be hired at 18 years old as a police officer because they don't have that life experience, as, as we call it. And the life experience is hard to explain to an 18-year-old when you say you're not ready. But when you ask them at 24, do you think you're ready now? They, they say, now I get it. Now I get what you're talking about, the life experience. Because you can imagine throwing an 18-year-old who's fresh out of high school into one of these volatile situations, and they don't understand because they don't have any experience in the real world. No different than you folks in the classroom is that an 18-year-old probably can't relate to that 17-year-old very well when they're looking to have to be that parental adult father figure. You need that life experience. In regards to the situations you're in in life, definitely officiating help me because you have guys like, and I'll just pick some names, but Boris Robolka or Fran Gao or whoever on the bench yelling at you all game and and you have to remain professional that is your job. And, you know, we do that selfishly on the ice because we want to get the next assignment. But at the end of the day, you're also learning a valuable life skill and trait moving forward to say, hey, I can
3: take this. So I guess my my question would be, is that the the advice you would give to someone who's thinking of becoming a police officer? Because maybe there's someone around that 18 to 20 year old um, age range, it's listening to this. Would you tell them, go get some life experiences? Is it, is it travel the world? Is it go pull a wrench in the oil field? Like, what would you recommend?
2: I'm a big advocate of not going into a career right out of high school. You look at any career, as soon as you get it, you're, you're married to your career, Monday to Friday, or shift work, or whatever it is. You can't just take a year off, or a month off, and go traveling, that, that reality is gone. And I took five years from, from high school to career, And I was able to travel the world, see a lot of cool things. And then I'm settled into my career. And during that five year span, you also grow as a person and mature. So that when you get on the street and you're dealing with these people, you're a lot more comfortable and work is a lot more enjoyable when you have self-confidence, being able to deal with all these different people in different situations. So back to what Cole was asking, does the academy prepare you for this, all of a sudden this wave of garbage that's gonna hit you on day one. They do. We have a lot of scenarios. Uh, we do a lot of de-escalation training, uh, a lot of empathy-based training. The biggest hurdle that we're having right now is the mental health end of things. Is When we went through the academy 17, 18 years ago, mental health wasn't um, wasn't at the forefront it is now. Mental health is huge. And whether it's diagnosed or undiagnosed, again, going back to the life skills thing, is that an 18-year-old won't be able to deal with Somebody maybe who's diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar and how to communicate with them and how to deal with them. They get frustrated almost and they want to leave the situation as quick as they can versus because they don't know they're they're self-conscious. So mental health thing, um, the mental health aspect of it is is the huge um, training point moving forward for the policing world as a whole, for sure.
3: So is one of the things like Cole and I as, as teachers or in my situation, uh, pre-service teachers so working to be become one we hear about is we, we heard about burnout. We hear about an attrition rate from teachers mm-hmm. and, and the stat is about 50% of teachers in Alberta quit in their first five years. Wow. Uh, I'm curious if you have an idea of about how many police officers after they get hired, stay hired, whether it's in one of the municipal police programs or, or RCMP and, and do you think that burnout and maybe not having those mental health, I guess, skills or, or abilities to kind of correct their behavior or reach out. Do you think that might play a part in people saying, hey, you know what? I thought I wanted to, to be an officer, but this isn't the life for me.
2: Yeah, you know what? I, I don't know what the attrition numbers are. Like, I, I don't have a percentage like that. Um, I can tell you in cameras, we, we don't have that much. Uh, my graduating class at Edmonton was 52 people. And I think of that 40 are still on the force, give or take um there were some within the first number of months they said this isn't for me um i truly blame that and i'm not picking on them but i blame that on people not doing their research in regards to the type of career they're getting into some people will get start the job and say i can't do shift work well y- you signed up for it you know <laughs> i'm not sure where we where we missed the boat on that or you know it didn't connect the dots but you know the the attrition and the burnout yeah the burnout is there for sure um and that's where you need to find the work-life balance and i think anybody starting a career uh, at any level that first year you want to impress and you want to do your best and all of a sudden when you look back on that year if you're honest with yourself you can say my career just consumed me for 12 months and i was school was done at four but i didn't finish all my stuff at home till eight and all of a sudden you realize you've done that six days a week for the last for the entire school year and you look back on what you've done to yourself and you have more gray hairs and you're cranky and you can't sleep and so i'm not saying burnout isn't real but i think a lot of times people do the burnout to themselves um and then the further you get along in your career regardless of your profession you realize you understand how to deal with your job as a whole better and that just comes with experience and you know the you start a young career or a career as a young person and you look at the senior guys and you're like how are you still here? Like you're so calm and you're happy. That's odd. And but they've learned the shortcuts and how to make things work, right? But still deliver the same product. And policing's no different. So
1: it's because I'm a bit of a nihilist. I in my yeah. first year teaching I tracked my hours. Right? Uh, I was
2: an average <laughs> of
1: 64 hours a week yeah uh, during the school it's stupid uh yeah. should not be working but like you said and just like in teaching david it gets better yeah. uh you get more efficient you find the shortcuts you've built up it's like a muscle the more you work it the more you use the more you have to use david Absolutely. Loves it. Uh, but i'm curious because i think being a cop especially in a smaller community like cameras where you are you're part of a team yeah. And that team protects itself, especially the younger people. So when you were coming up through the ranks in Cameras as part of that team, yeah. did you have a mentor who kind of looked out for you? And w- what are some things you learned from them?
2: Oh, you know what? I, I don't know if we had any one mentor, but our service is small. There's only um, There was only 25 in the organization when I started. And of that 25, there was probably only 20 on the street. And you're in, we're in squads of four and five people right, from all levels of seniority. And you work with them well, you see them almost more than your family throughout the course of the year. And you're in some pretty dynamic situations sometimes in that bonding and can happen very, very fast. And so it, it is an unwritten rule that the senior guys help the junior guys along. You know, yes, there are certain things that are trial by fire and you know, the, the principal checks in on you guys and your classes going bananas and paper airplanes are flying or whatever, the principal is probably going to laugh and keep walking down the hallway. Like it's almost a rite of passage, right? We have the same type of things, but then there's the other end of things where if you're going to let them go through a rite of passage, you almost need to help them on the other side to say, hey, administratively, if you do this, it's going to make your life a little bit easier. And then you're not going to hate life walking away from work. And Um, So I didn't have an individual mentor. Once I got into the dog world, I definitely did, for sure. Talking to people and seeing who's got the open mind and is doing the good things and those who you want to emulate, right? And that's the same in any type of career. So, Um, But yeah, that small team cohesiveness definitely helps a person grow. And I can tell you within the last 17 years, the new people starting on the street seem to grow and learn a lot faster than the the old school version, if if you want to call it that, where it was sink or swim for a long time. Right. Whereas now people are a little more open to sharing and and you can talk to the bosses a lot easier and and you have a lot more knowledge. You don't have to figure things out yourself, which helps you learn and become more comfortable. So, yeah, you see that in
1: teaching, too. There used to be like a like a cone of silence around your work. It was like, this is mine. It's like intellectual property. But that's stupid. like. We should be sharing liberally or more like, here's what I know. Give it away, give it away, give it away. And I think that's that's good to hear that that's happening in not just teaching, but in your profession.
2: You know what? And I think, you know, coaching hockey is a great example. The best coaches in the world are the ones that are willing to share what they know because they're not fearful of the people coming up because they're confident of their skills and ability, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you're confident in in what you do, then share your knowledge because it's only going to make everyone better and it's going to force you at the end of the day. To become better yourself so you know not to be super deep and cheesy but um you know it's, it's like the dog world you know like we get together and you know my last dog we we did really well we were very successful on the national stage and you know have a cabinet full of trophies and when people ask like how do you get there i'm going to tell them this is what i do and knowing that frankie down the road now knows what i do well i'm going to put more time in to become better because i can't let him beat me next time If that makes sense right so yeah it helps everyone get better when you look at the overall big picture and if um the people that are short-sighted are not going to improve and eventually they're going to get left behind
3: yeah kind of that idea of like iron sharpens iron like everyone in those competitive situations kind of helps each other get a little better when you're in competition and then and obviously having those those mentors so a couple of other people we've talked to have talked about specifically Um, what their mentor did and lots of time it is things with their job with like life experience was there any like one piece of mentorship advice that you were given whether it was in your initial um, kind of stint with the police or in the canine unit that you like to pass on to people that you're really really attached to
2: you know what i'd say there was two uh, off the top of my head is is one um cole you might not even know this but i write poetry of all things like Yes, I'm a super triple-A kind of personality guy, but yeah, no, I write poetry. And one of the poems I write is called The Locker. And the, The Locker, the theme of it is that you go to work as a regular guy, you put your uniform on, you do your work, and at the end of the day, everything that I've seen over the last 12 hours stays in the locker, you know, and how important that locker is to have. And but interesting is that was written a number of years ago when it was almost full paw to talk about your feelings because God forbid guys don't have feelings and we're supposed to be tough and whatever. Right. You know, obviously the mental health end of things is a lot different now and you can see the benefits of talking to people and sharing. But but that's the benefit. So the one piece of advice I got was don't take what you have at home at work. Don't take it home because that is going to affect your personal life. It's going to affect your marriage, your relationship with your wife, your relationship with your kids, all that stuff. Um, and the other thing was, is we had a a lecture 17 years ago in, in Depot or recruit training. And he was a fellow that was probably 20 years of service coming up on retirement. And his whole, um, preamble was that don't think you're so special. The organization won't miss you. And we're kind of you know, we are all there for a reason and we all want to shoot for the stars and at that point you had 54 people or 52 people in the class all thinking they're going to be a chief one day and um, want to do the best they can do and he said, envision a pot of water as the organization and you join the organization and that's you putting your hand in the pot of water and when you leave, your hand leaves and what do you have left? The pot of water. They're not going to miss you. And it was interesting, Right. And, and I think that, you know, it brought a lot of perspective into if you leave tomorrow, the organization is still going to be there. Do your best to leave your legacy, absolutely. But understand that you still have to look out for yourself and do what you want to do because the organization is not going to be calling you the week after, the month after, and the year after to see how you're doing because mm-hmm. the next person's in line to take your spot. So I think those two pieces of information um, were really good. You know, don't take stuff home with you and understand that, you know, any career, unless you're owning your own business, you are just a number, right? And, you know, it, it puts things in perspective a little, I found. I, I especially love that first piece of advice for new teachers because you
1: have Johnny do X or Susie do Y and it can you can let it ruin your day if you if you let it fester or Absolutely. you can just be like that lives here and that's a future Matt, a future Cole, a future Dave yeah. problem. I'm going to be home and be present with my family. And I think that that balance is crucial or back to that burnout. That's where that really starts to, the chances really escalate. Yeah. So what I want to do is just start to kind of pick your brain at what makes, or your expertise. I'm really interested in both canine training and de-escalation. So I want to start with de-escalation. We've mentioned the canine. I want to actually block a huge segment off of that because training dogs (laughs) and training people in grade eight, I got to think it's like the same thing. When it comes to de-escalation, like what is, what is de-escalation? Let's just define it first yeah. from a cop's point of view.
2: You know, de-escalation, like I said earlier, is that we're going into situations where there are people are at their crisis point. The situation is a crisis point. And we want to be able to bring them down so that we can understand the root of the problem. That's how I view de-escalation. I just need to bring someone down because if they're operating a 12 out of 10, no one's going to get any progress in that call. So I need to bring them down so that we can have a conversation not to say who's right and wrong, not to pick sides, but to figure out what the root of the issue is so that we can come up with a solution that is going to benefit all the parties involved. So that's my take on de-escalation. I'm sure guys with letters after their name have a much fancier version. I have letters before my name, CST. And, uh, you know, so. but street smarts
1: those who can't do teach so i want to i want to hear from people that can do that's you, there you, go. Uh, there you go. so let's just say i don't know if you have anything either top of mind front of mind maybe a crazy story i i asked you to kind of like think about them we'll see if anything comes up but yeah. say you're coming into a very hostile situation you're on the scene and maybe there's a marital issue or something it's heated your voice is going to be the first thing I would imagine you use. So t- tell me about what it. What are some of the first things you do when you get that call to use that l- least amount of force to kind of bring them down a little bit?
2: You know what? It's interesting. It's not even um, the first thing. Is the voice? The first thing is the presence. You have Correct. to walk in and show that you're confident. It's no different than an official step in on the ice for warm ups. If his skate lace is undone and his jersey's done, you're done, bud you know you have to have that presence um and the is it is uh it is important but what we find a lot of the times is just having being in the same room as, of those people and saying hey can i come talk to you nine times out of ten we don't have to raise our voice right um which is a good thing so the presence alone because we have that magical 49 cent patch on the side of our jackets for some reason it works and uh so, but once we get there, um, yeah, we need, we need to bring them down. And there's a whole bunch of different techniques we use. You know, if um, the best thing I love is I love having a female policing partner because we'll go to a domestic, for instance, and she can talk to the wife. And the, the, the female on female, they just bond better and they open up better. Same as, as the, the male on male. And you, you have to be empathetic and you have to listen. There's, there's the 80 20 rule for de escalation. I'm going to do 20% of the talking and listen 80% of the time and actively listen. That is the absolute key. Along with the act of listening, you're paraphrasing, you're giving them cues. As you're walking into the house or the apartment or whatever it is, you're looking for different things that might be triggers or hooks for them. Uh, For those that don't know what triggers and hooks are, triggers are something that's going to set somebody off. It's a bad thing to talk about and the hook is what they want to talk about. So um you have to be careful because if all of a sudden you walk in the house and there's a framed picture of somebody and they're like oh that's a beautiful person and they're like that person actually is deceased and died last year and that's my memorabilia to him you've put yourself in tough right so we'll try and use hooks something like they're wearing right especially if it's a child you know and hey that's an awesome shirt you love superman or all of a sudden you can talk about superman for 10 minutes there is no rush and you can form that bond between you and show them you have empathy And bring it all down and next thing you know that whole room like you told said Cole which was quite volatile before you're almost singing kumbaya to be honest if you can do it right and people are opening up and you're finding out what the issues are and at the end of the day the issue of the day might be uh, someone knocked the goldfish tank over but really deep down seated is that you know there's a lot more to it right that was the straw that broke the camel's back as cops and as police officers the problem is is that we want to rush to solve the problem you have the new guys coming out of depot, and they're told you're going to solve the world you're going to be the person with that magical cape and you are going to change the world reality is it's not going to happen but the young ones the new ones are prepared to spend all that time at these calls and do the right things which is fantastic the more senior you get you go to your 50-second domestic, you're like, ah, I've seen that before. I know how to solve this. Guys are getting in and out as fast as they can. And that's not the way to solve problems. And you miss so much of the information trying to speed things up. But when you sit down and you actively listen to somebody and you understand what the hooks and triggers are and you can paraphrase what they're saying, you're empathizing and you're forming a relationship with them, you're building trust with them. And as soon as they feel that they can trust you, they're going to open up and you're gonna find out what avenues they need to help their situation out. Uh, and really at the end of the day, not to sound crass, but so that we don't have to go back. We don't wanna to have to go back to a call. It's so no different than, than you guys. You wanna be able to deal with a kid, deal with them properly, so you're not dealing with that same issue over and over and over and over, because then it becomes frustrating for both parties.
3: It, it sounds like the, the key to, to effective policing and, and lots of jobs being effective is, is relationship building. And obviously you guys will be in a a different situation than Cole and I are as a teacher. But other than maybe looking for those like physical characteristics, like a shirt or something that you might draw attention to in a conversation, like what other techniques have you found that that have helped you build those relationships like somewhat quickly? (laughs)
2: Lying. You know, if, if you have a student and his favorite thing to do is play checkers, and you despise checkers, guess what? Your favorite thing in the world when you talk to him is checkers. And five minutes of research on your end is going to pay huge dividends. Absolute yeah, huge yeah. dividends. Um, actually, I watched that show. What, what's the one, uh, the movie, the the chess one? Uh, she's playing chess. She's really good. Uh, Queen's Gambit. Queen's Gambit. Queens Gambit. I, yeah. yeah, I happened to watch that the other day. I kid you not, two weeks later, we arrested a guy who loves chess. And I happen to remember like the Rook and the R7 to move or something. And he's like, you know about chess? I'm like, ah, you know what? I know a little bit. And next thing you know, we had a 20-minute chat about chess. Open-ended questions from my end. So he's providing the information and I can use little bits and pieces of what he's saying and work off it. I have no idea about chess, right? <laughs> so, you know, I, I say lying in a funny tone, but you, you have to be prepared to ask those open-ended questions, have good communication. And what they say is gold because what they information they provide you, you can use to your benefit and foster that relationship, whether that relationship is going to last 10 minutes, 20 minutes or 10 months like you guys. So I'm curious, then we've talked about how you respond
1: to a call. Yeah, but I think just like in like in my classroom, I do a shitload of preventative stuff. I am your best friend before you screw up. Yeah, I'm trying to establish that rapport so you don't want to wrong Absolutely. me. Like, is that probably the most important part of policing? And is it probably the least reported? Like your guys' community activism?
2: I would say so, yeah. Proactive yeah. patrols. Uh, being yeah. proactive out in the community. And that can be everything from us doing uh, press release, media releases, saying, hey, this month we're going to focus on uh, people texting and driving. We're trying to to, to do all those good things So that people, it sticks in their mind so that they don't have to run across us. And it can even be as simple as, in the summertime, I carry around free ice cream cards. And if I see a kid riding a bike with a helmet, I'll get stopped and give him a free ice cream card. Well, you know what? That might pay dividends five years down the road when he gets hit by a car and he's wearing his helmet. You know? Mm. And you can never measure the preventative end of things. No different than the classroom, right? You say hi to Johnny on day one and he's in a bad mood, but you said hi to him and he's going to be good all day. You have no idea whether you prevented something. But at the end of the day, it makes for a better environment for all involved. So, so yeah, we, we do that preventative stuff on every level. Um, whether it's a check stop on an evening night in June, and we'll do it right on Main Street, right on 48th Ave. We know full well we're not going to catch anyone. But the goal is to be preventative so that the person driving to the bar, the last thing they went through was a check stop and they don't drink and drive later. One, it's going to save me about nine hours of paperwork and it might save a life as well. But absolutely. So yeah, preventative stuff is huge and we do that as much as we can Um, because at the end of the day, you know, we want to keep the community safe, but people can essentially no different than the classroom. If they can police themselves, that's almost just as beneficial as us being involved.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely it does. So it, it sounds like that preventative measures and maybe the importance of it is something that's important to you as as, as a police officer and doing your job effectively before you really have to respond and de-escalate. Yeah. Would you say that that's something that the the common folk, us civilians, don't understand um, maybe as well as, as, as you guys do? Or is there another piece of information that you think that you've been given as a police officer that I guess has prepared you for other parts of your life?
2: No, I, I think it's more prevalent now with today's technology. So before Instagram and Facebook and, and all that stuff, people would just see a cop driving around, you know, like why is that policeman driving through the school zone every day at three o'clock? He must have nothing else to do. Well, no, we're being preventative. So some Dick doesn't drive through the school zone and smack a kid. Right. So, you know, there's, there's, yes, there's times we just drive around and we look for stuff, but, nine times out of ten we're doing things with a purpose and with the social media availability now you can follow any organization um, any policing organization and you'll see hey this month is this awareness and today we're going to do speed zone traps at this area and we're trying to be more out there to educate the public because the the more we can educate the public the more appreciation they can have for what's going on and and at the end of the day like any organization no different than the schools or the doctors or the policing we want to be supported and we want that support to be positive and we've all seen how easily a firestorm can start on on the socials these days and it takes off like no one's business and the keyboard warriors going to town and it's it's disgusting right so you want to try and be ahead of that curve playing catch up is never fun in any entity in any profession in any career for really any reason and if we can Stop that before it happens with the right mannerisms and the right proactiveness. you know, at the end of the day, everyone wins because then the community can better appreciate what that particular career is doing out there and for what reason. So. So I think teachers
1: and cops both have an imaging problem in the public. Like listening to you talk, like everybody thinks cops think speeding tickets. Well, no, that's like the last resort. You, you fucked up. Okay. But we're trying to do everything we can to stop you from getting that ticket. Just as we as teachers are trying to prepare you the best we can for the future. Yeah. Why do you think we have such an imaging problem in both our professions? Because I view you guys as heroes.
2: Yeah. I I think it's, uh, I think we get a bad rap because at the end of the day, We give out fines and we put people in jail. So, you know, we're, we're up against the, it's like roughing, right? Every call you make half the ring's pissed at you. So You're risking your life. I don't
1: understand why people don't like cop. I just blows my mind.
2: Yeah. You know what? And and I think the, um, the social reform for policing is much overdue. It's no Mm -hmm. different than any facet of society. There's good apples and bad apples. We, are two professions, we live under a microscope every day. You know, little Johnny goes home, and the best line I ever heard from a teacher was, believe half the stuff that comes home to your house, and I'll believe half the stuff your kid brings to the school. I thought that was absolutely fantastic, you know? <laughs> and, you know, it's so true, right? And, yeah. you know, it, it, things get skewed, and people take things out of context, but, you know, for us... Right now, I would say the biggest, one of the biggest battles we have is ourselves. We have some bad apples out there that have fallen through the cracks, that have not got the proper punitive discipline earlier on in their career to shape their behavior, and now they're out there in maybe some senior leadership roles, um, more senior on the street, they have more clout, and they're the ones that are being videotaped now and on YouTube for for all the, the bad actions that a police officer could do. And unfortunately, with the social media, it's we get painted with the same brush. It's not Cole Feth is a bad teacher. It's teachers in general are a bad teacher. And it's not Matt was a dick to me at the traffic stop. There's, all cops are dicks, right? Mm-hmm. And that makes it tough. And, um, you know, doctors are the same boat. Nurses are the same boat. I went TR and I got treated so far. I know nurses are so grumpy these days. It's just it's easy to blanket a profession where there's so many people involved in it. And as opposed to people looking a little more objectively and saying, no, things, things are good. It's just, we need to tweak some things with some people sometimes to to make overall. Right. And then of course the keyboard warriors, they're bored. What else are they going to do? Right. They need something to do. So COVID, they don't get a job. Exactly.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I think that's, that's a really good, really good segue, Matt. I know like people always make jokes that people want to be teachers because they want the summers off or anything else, or mm-hmm. or people will think that people want to be police officers because they, they like to the control. But but yeah. you know and Cole know and hopefully most people listening know that there's this idea behind like public service that you want to to give back to your community. And and I wonder I wonder how, how you would think other than doing the things like following the social medias of of the actual programs, like how do we get that message? out there that police officers are, are doing what they think is right or and obviously for teachers it's a little bit different it's, it's less of a hot button topic mm-hmm. right now but what can be done to really show like the the good stuff the fact you're giving out ice cream cards um i grew up in in lacombe where they had like the cop cards so yeah. those were pretty prevalent i know they were other places like what what can kind of be done to to let everyone be aware of, of the good work being done
2: you know it, It's today's day and age is, is the socials. That's, that's the reality, whether you like it or not. And it's doing the community events and getting out there and almost like a politician, right? Like kissing the babies, giving handshakes and hugs, you know, COVID friendly, of course, but you know, it's, it is, it's getting out there. And um, like when I had my canine unit with my old dog, we were at the dare classes probably once a week. Right. And we'd hand out our postcards and lanyards and all that stuff. And it goes home to the mom and dad and, Um, it is it's just getting out there and essentially getting away from the computer screen yes the socials are out there to send the big message of the organization but those get redundant you know you know you follow you follow the flames we'll say on instagram well they post Whoa. once a day. Whoa,
1: they, oh yeah i got two flame fans here oh uh, sorry, sorry a, guys I, so I, continue, I continue, continue matt continue. yeah i'm
2: Florida. i'm all about florida now they're doing really good been cheering for them for years <laughs> <laughs> but no it, it is it, it gets redundant you know like those organizations say they post four different things a day well by the seventh day you're not even seeing what they're posting you're just floating by right But if all of a sudden Jerome McGinley shows up at the rink to shake hands and sign autographs, that means more than posting something on the socials. So it's almost going back to the 80s philosophy of getting out there and actually being a human and not being so robotic and pigeonholed to the whole socials. The socials have their place, 100%, and I'm not taking away from that. But it's getting out there and actually meeting the people and and showing them that, you're not just the person that sits behind the desk. You're not just the person that has the forty-two cent flash on their shoulder that you're actually a person and you're a pretty damn good person. And if you get to know me, your crappy opinion might actually change. So Yeah.
1: As as somebody who's taught math, it turns out humans suck at math. Not necessarily apply or doing two plus two or your your time yeah. staples, but we look at the big data and we don't process it. We get numb to it. Yeah, but you yeah. attach a story to that and that's then we're hooked. You got Absolutely. us. Yeah. So Speaking of stories, what's the story about you and getting into the canine unit? Because you're five years yeah. into your policing career. What drew you to the canine unit?
2: Yeah, so long and short is, is I guess I'm like you guys. I always loved dogs and turtles and fish and animals and pets and whatever. I had them all. I even brought home an iguana one time. Mom wasn't happy. I didn't tell her I was doing it. That was a tough day. <laughs> tough day in the house as a kid. But um, started policing and... Um, I was about three years in and I approached the chief and I said, let's get a full-time canine unit up and running. Um, Rick Hopwood, who was in town prior to me, he had a dog, um, but it wasn't full-time. It stayed at home and um, quite frankly, it wasn't supported the way it should have been to be successful. So he retired and I went to the chief and I said, let's give this a go. I think I've got what it takes. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So, uh, I brought at that time a puppy over from the Netherlands and uh, unfortunately things didn't work out with that. So I got a different dog and I ended up going to Calgary for four months, did my training down there, met some great guys and hit the ground running and built the unit from the ground up from policy to ordering vehicles. And I was about a four or five year member at that time. And and I like it, It's it just brings a different facet altogether of policing. Um, you get to hunt the, the really, really bad guys you get to the the canine family within the police family is such a special group of guys. It's almost like going to the all-star game and in, in the NHL, if that, if I can make a parallel of some sports, some sort, mm-hmm. um, you get some great, great guys who, who all want to work hard. There is no ego. You go to great conferences, you share ideas. Everyone wants the best for each other. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it's been really really good and I would say my best canine call to date um, Was there was some kids that well, you know what it's not even that kind of a big juicy story but it kind of just hit you in the feelers instead, but oh. uh, Some kids walked away from their house They, I think there were three five and six uh, in cameras and mum went out to look for them and they were they, they were gone they vanished out of the backyard and it was a spring day uh, moving into the summer and we were just about to call in the Edmonton helicopter with their infrared camera to look for these three kids. And I went out there and I tracked where they had walked and we found them way down in the river valley, about a kilometer away from their house. So, you know, it, it's, it's things like that, that the public, you know, they see the police dog and it's big and scary, but it can be, have so many other different applications. And at the end of the day, reunited these three kids with their families. Right. So, uh, yeah that particular dog she's retired and i have a new one zoe i got her at 10 weeks she's now 15 months and we're off to training in three weeks so yeah so i'm curious it sounds like well one you built a program yeah I from
1: did. nothing in your what yeah. your third fourth year yeah. wow uh yeah. and then you took that program and you were a national champion or a
0: provincial champion
2: um yeah so every year the canadian police canine association we have the national championships mm-hmm. and um quite frankly all the units in canada want to win so mm-hmm. they'll have a little internal competition to see who the best of the unit is and then send them to the national competition so you have you know 30 or 40 of the best dogs in canada um, i won a number of awards like second and third in different categories I think the highest I got was sixth overall or fifth, sixth overall, I think, in Canada, which isn't too bad for a one-man unit. Um, <laughs> don't I say. One, one year I did, uh, I came second place in Canada for drug detection and um, that going against all the border dogs and all they do is just drug work. So uh, he was a three-time national champion. He was good and I came close, but yeah, you know, so things like that, they're fun, right? It doesn't... Yeah. It doesn't define you, right? Because the the real good stuff is on the street, catching the bad guys and finding the lost people. But it's fun to go against other guys around the country, and, and we have a good time with it. So,
1: so is that? Don't you dare cop out! Is this is is that the dog, or is that the trainer, or is it a little bit of both? And like, what do you know, since you're beating guys whose job is to detect drugs? How did you know he was a one man unit beating them? Is it, it it can't just be the dog? What do, what do you know that we don't or they don't?
2: Oh, well, it's funny is that uh, they'll say that the handler always slows the dog down and I, I don't disagree with that at all. I, I simply hold the dumb end of the line. It's like the construction worker that holds the end with no numbers. I hold that end, right? I'm just holding on a piece of wood. And, you know, the dog does the thing. But like anything, if you put the work in for a solid foundation, the back end, you're going to do nothing but great things. And so I'd like to say, think that I put some solid foundational work into my dogs and then um it's like edge work and skating if you can work your edges you're going to become fast and fast and faster and faster and faster and all of a sudden you're going to be skating circles around your buddies even though your buddy at the start might have been skating circles around you but his edges are horrendous so yeah (laughs) (laughs) absolutely (laughs) No, some good good foundational work right and then thinking outside the box um Mm I was fortunate and I am fortunate as a one-man unit. I get to go to all the different conferences and no different than teaching. It's your classroom. You know what's going to work for your 20 kids. It's going to be completely different than the teacher beside you that's teaching chemistry or something with the same 20 kids. You're going to do you and it's going to work different. And every dog is different. So you go to these conferences for a week. You might only pick two or three things, two or three things out, and it's going to work for my dog. Um, A lot of agencies are still stuck in the 80s. You know, they have their dog and they're like, we're on week four of training. Let's pull that binder out. We're on chapter three. And now we're going to go to page seven. You all have known those people, right? And it's horrendous. And oh, we can't go to page seven without completing page six. Actually, you failed page six. Your dog is gone. We don't have time to fix it. And it happens. Those are real stories. And I don't lie. Being able to think outside the box. And finding out what works, and especially mm-hmm. um, interesting, I'll do a quick segue here. or I, I, I'm going to shoot off a rabbit hole. The policing world has realized the civilian world is actually quite intelligent, finally. <laughs> I know, it's mind-blowing, right? I went to Los Angeles and did a week-long course with the FBI for firearms instruction. Best course I've ever been on. And, um, you know, you got to shoot with the FBI guys and it's all Americanized and there was cool guns and some good stories came out of it. But at the end of the day, all of the material that the FBI is teaching comes from the civilian gun world because they're good. That's what they do for a living. The civilians do it for a living. Same as the dog world now. In the last five years, a lot has changed and we realize that people that have dogs and our training dogs, they do it because they're passionate about it, not because it's the second binder on the shelf and they have to do it to get a paycheck. They do it because they want to become better. And so the civilian world has had a huge influence in regards to the policing world, you know, in those two particular entities. But I would say in all levels of training. And so it's quite interesting that um, we've opened our doors up to that. I've always done that with my dog. So back to your question, I know it's a long way of getting around it, but. I've always looked outside the box to find what would work best. Not if I have a problem I'm going to find the third binder on the shelf to say my dog shits in the woods and it should shit in the kennel. How do I how do I solve this? Right? So so yeah, I'll take a little bit of credit but uh, most of it's a dog. <laughs> okay.
3: That that actually is a pretty good segue for something that that I'm curious about, Matt, when you talk about the bringing in of maybe civilian and like outside perspectives yeah. and forward in the policing world, not just specifically maybe canine or, or firearm, but how do you see policing in 2021 and beyond responding to this, I guess, like acknowledgement or, or understanding that the civilian world has some um, some things to add and and specifically I have like a psychology background and a sociology background. So I'm, I'm wondering if you think there'll be more of a focus on like that training. I know as police officers, you guys have an absolute ton that, that you have to do, especially in those six months. But do you think mm-hmm. there's more training? Do you think there's more? professional development kind of throughout the career? Because I, I I don't know what that looks like for police. I know for teachers, it's maybe a couple days a month where you, you have some Zoom calls, but yep. what do you think? That God, would, I like, hope your PD
2: is be?
1: better than ours, too.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know what, I, I
2: think as we progress um, and you look at, um, and I'll use the states as an example, you look at the defund of the police movement, right? And there's credence to it 100% there is um, maybe not to the level that it, it's being perpetrated for but um, how are you going to solve that obviously any organization whether it's teachers doctors policing are going to say our organization is fantastic and it's running tip-top shape and we need no help when the entire society is saying it's complete trash so you need some sort of oversight and you need if you talk about police specifically you need some civilian interjection and injection into our culture to have an objective view of that to say this is what we see you might need some more training in xyz and so where it's going to look and how it's going to progress forward um i don't know it'll be interesting to see but i can see a lot more civilian involvement so that everything is more transparent and as we know in any career the more transparent you are from top to bottom the less hard questions you have to answer. It might be hard on day one when you open up the books and say this is what we got, but iron out those wrinkles and uh, then I think you're away to the races as long as the underlying principles of the profession stay the same. Teaching and
1: cops—they, I'm gonna just go on a limb and say they might not be ideologically conservative, but they are professionally conservative. We've always done it this way, so that's yep. the best way. Absolutely. This podcast is kind of a way of challenging that. Like, hey, maybe there's some new ideas, but hey, I don't know. Uh, but I'm curious when you hear the words "defund the police," like what what do people in your unit or people in your circle? What are they saying? Yeah, you know that's probably a good idea or there's some good points here, or are they just like they're back against the wall. They're not open to it.
2: No, I, I think, you know, we're fortunate. Our organization is pretty good and open-minded and okay. um, we know that in any organization and any career, you can, you can make things better. You know, mm-hmm. today we can be better tomorrow and better the following day, whether that's through transparency, whether that's through the number of cops on the street, whether it's through the you know, type of equipment, um, I think there could be some good changes, and going back to about half hour ago, and I said the bad apples. The bad apples are the ones that bring on this defund the police movement because a couple cops make a bad decision, hundred percent. And we could talk for hours about you know the the Black Lives Matter and the racial injustice and how we all got to the defund of the police conversation, but the premise behind it, I think, if organizations, in my opinion, like I'm a constable, I'm not at the administrative level. But I think if you brought in more internal affairs and held cops to not a higher standard, but more accountable standard, the internals affairs units of all these organizations, they are tapped, they are so busy, they can't keep up. Even ACERT, uh, the provincial watchdog body this last week came out and said, we are overrun, we can't keep up. Well, if you want the proper oversight, give them more resources, right? Don't take away the, the powers of the police Give them more resources to hold us accountable. Um, I think if you took little steps like that and showed the public uh, that, you know what, we're willing to be transparent, hold us accountable, 100%, but right now we just don't have the physical means to do that along with keeping the streets safe. And it would be interesting to see a lot of the people who are out there saying defund the police if they've ever called to actually use the police you know it's just food for thought and a conversation piece right but um just like teachers we want to go to work every day and be liked we want to be able mm-hmm. to drive down the street and wave at people and not get the middle wave middle finger wave right you know it, it, that doesn't make a fun day and if it takes us you know i want body cameras i, I mm-hmm. i'm a huge advocate for it the the financial cost to it is astronomical um, there's one company and they are the only company that have it so you can imagine that if if only Reebok sold hockey sticks you know where the price goes right <laughs> so, um it is so now you have to go to City Council and say yes hold us accountable but if you want to do this it's going to cost X millions of dollars and now the City Council has to decide what's more important millions of dollars or holding like it's the conversation that seems to have no end right um, but body body cameras, to me, I, I think would answer a lot of questions. It would show a lot of good things, and it would weed out the um, the different stories that the complainant and the police always seem to have. You know, yeah. And if if you know different than in your classroom, if you had a camera in your classroom, how many issues would be solved to to show Mr. and Mrs. Johnson that you know what Johnny he didn't do what he said he did. Have a look right yeah but then
1: i can't do all the questionable stuff i do matt and that's, no, I
2: <laughs> that's what got us in the defund the police movement
1: <laughs> oh, defund features oh wait we already are okay no. <laughs> uh uh so other than the money is there is there any like personal privacy what 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 other evidence is cited against them because to me i'm on the same cab as you it seems like a
2: no-brainer like is there anything other than fiscal
1: or is it just pure dollars it's pure dollars, okay.
2: pure dollars. Okay. The, uh, the the devices themselves that hook onto your chest um, they're only about eight hundred dollars, so in a police budget, that's not too bad. But it's the data storage that this company has has the the market on, right? So um, that, that's simply it. It's the money. You know, you talk to any organization, any chief of police, they say, absolutely. If we had the money, we would do it. If we had the money, so
3: one day we'll see. Um, so, so other than than transparency and and, and resources. Um, what what else do you think could be done to to aid training or, or aid the ability, of the police officer on the street to do their job? I spent some time in Europe and, and maybe it's too big of a, a reach, but London has an insane surveillance system and people are always mm. scared of a, a big brother state. So I don't think that's the answer because I've heard people say that we'll just put cameras everywhere and in a rural setting that's just not possible. So what's something that can be done? Is it getting more police officers out kind of doing community policing, doing patrols? Like what do you think could, could help if it wasn't necessarily a resource or transparency improvement?
2: Cool. You know what? I, I, I would say the resource thing is the biggest thing. It's like any career, any profession, you need more, right? You need more teachers, you need more doctors, you need more nurses. Um, Unfortunately, there's a few organizations out there, or a few different schools that probably wreck it for the greater good. And you know, their teachers aren't busy, and maybe they're overstaffed. And you know, there's some organizations here that, you know, you can reallocate resources. Um, But honestly, it's boots on the street and going back to that grassroots policing is what's going to help us. So, all right. So we're going to
1: phase into kind of the last segment of the the program, whatever this is. Uh, (laughs) And I'm kind of curious. Covid has shook everything. Yeah, shook the tree of education. Right now, we're doing a a podcast through Google yep. Beats. Uh, I had to. Teach, Matt had to call me 15 minutes ago. Yep. I had to get him hooked up. He figured it out all by himself. Good job. Uh, I'm you know. still working on like
2: flip phones and T9, buddy. Like, <laughs> oh god. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: how has COVID kind of changed policing? Are you seeing an uptick in? Like calls you're going to, are you less, is it more hands off? Like how, have, how, have, how has your life changed over the last year?
2: Yeah, so organizationally it changed a lot. Uh, yeah, I can talk about in-house first and then then out on the street as well. Um, so we developed essentially six different pods within our office, cohorts, I guess. Um, you know, So we have all the masking rules and the sanitation rules, um, the, the distance rules and all that stuff at the office. Um, We've had a couple bouts go through the office, but because of our cohorts and our distancing and doing all the right things, it didn't affect our office, which was, you know, we were very lucky. Um, You know, we were obviously just like you guys asking different questions from prisoners that come into our our vicinity and when we're dealing with people. um, The best thing that's happened is online reporting and on, you know, if, if you're a victim of a crime in a big center, you can just go online and report the crime. And then an officer will get back to you. And we purposely did not do that for the last number of years. And we would have people come down to the office or we would go to their house so that we could have that face to face interaction. Uh, COVID forced us to go online, uh, which was really interesting. But it's. As the restrictions have eased from a year ago, less and less people report online because they actually like seeing a cop, which is bizarre. Uh, So. Um, on the street though, you know, we're, we're probably doing no different than you guys, uh, to be quite blunt. Um, just doing the, the safe things of masking, sanitizing, dry, cracking hands from the amount of isogel we're using. Um, at the end of the day, the job has to get done and we just try and be as safe as we can in regards to the the, the safety end of things for calls for service. Um, a year ago, we... Absolutely hit rock bottom like we like zero calls for service because everyone was locked down the the town The city was like a ghost town um, Last summer it picked up a little bit as the restrictions eased, and then um, Right now, you know the the city by about 10 and 11 o'clock once the 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 liquor establishments are closed. It's it's a ghost town again um, But even a year ago even even the criminals were staying home and abiding by the guidelines Which was good to see I guess right, you know props to them for that Um <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, you know what? All in all, it's uh, it's been good. To, to be quite frank, the, the city's been good. In Cameros we're quite fortunate in our little bubble. The community is, we're not having the anti-mask rallies that other communities are having. And, you know, people are buying in and, you know, I, I think our numbers are down. I think we only have two in the city right now. So we're, we're quite fortunate. Um, so, you know, we thought there would be a lot more domestic related calls for mm-hmm. the fall of last year um after the lockdown the layoffs the the people you know being furloughed and the financial strain we thought there would be a lot more domestic related issues in regards to um that kind of thing and it never came it never came so i don't know whether the the financial aid the provincial government provided or the federal government helped ease a little bit of that i don't know but that big wave of crap we were anticipating happening it never happened, which you know we feel quite fortunate for. So,
3: while you just kind of asked that, I was I was thinking about the importance of maybe being in a community, and I know that there are our members or officers who say, "Hey, I, I work in community X, but I live in community Y," and, yeah. and obviously that that's not the situation with you. I'm mm-hmm. just wondering if if you can give a little insight. Obviously, meeting people like like Cole and, and giving his his parents ride-alongs in the front seat of the car, not in the back seat of the car. Yeah. Um, and and letting them see, letting them see the town. Like, how, how do you think that impacts your your ability to do your job?
2: You know what? It's uh, it's not easy to be blunt because we don't know whether we're going to go to a call that involves our doctor, dentist, school teacher, the mayor, whatever. Right? There's only seventeen thousand people here, and I call cameras like you can know everybody or know nobody. Really, you can. Um, because of the canine world, I, I end up being in the paper a lot, and I know a lot of people within the community. And does it make the the job tough? It, it does, absolutely. That being said, um, there are people within the community that I was friends with my first couple of years policing that I no longer associate with, and that's by my choice because of the decisions that they're making. So you, you just have to be careful and cognizant of the people that you're with, and you know, you look at Cole, good guy, solid, good family, no problem hanging out with him, right? For now. We're yeah. talking
3: about the same Cole, correct? I just want to make sure that. He's talking uh, about his kid. My yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh,
2: no, so, you know, y- y- you get to learn. Um it- It's difficult. That in the first few years, being in a smaller community and, you know, you want to go play rec hockey and all of a sudden you're playing rec hockey and, you know, you, you take a liking to a guy and all of a sudden you realize he drives drunk every weekend. Well, you can't be associated with that. That's that's the reality of it, right? We can't put ourselves in that position. So policing in a small community, yeah, it, it takes some fan dangling for sure. There's definitely cops in our organization that the public never sees because of the just the different work they do. And so I liken it to almost like a hockey team, right? You know, you, you have the forwards, the defense, the goalies, the coach. And and as an organization, we have to put the proper product on the street and we're all not going to fulfill the same role. Um, but policing in a small town, yeah, it's uh, it's it's different than, like you said, I live in Sherwood Park, but I police in Edmonton, right? It's different, for sure. Yeah, and that's but something I'm sure. That cool that that. That, the positive is is that if you live in the same town you, you work in, you have a greater sense of pride, for sure, right? Um, you know, if... If you're driving past and the mailbox is tipped over, you're probably going to stop and pick it up because you live there and you're going to have to drive home that past that way an hour later. Right. You have a sense of pride of the community and getting to know people a lot more. And then it probably makes you a more effective police officer for sure.
1: OK, so uh, I want to ask two questions Yeah. Uh, the first, and this will kind of bring us home. Uh, the first one we were kind of joking around earlier on that David and I both have dogs and we have yeah. not done a very good job of training them okay. So what's the first thing you do to train a dog? What's job one? Uh, and like how does that kind of set a standard so that they don't run our lives like uh, us two? yeah, and yeah. then follow that up with uh, What's your favorite Mishka story?
2: Uh Okay, so uh, dog training. It, a lot has evolved over the years. And I'll, I'll, I'll preface this with a little story, so it, it'll make sense. When I left the dog world, there was a canine guy in Saskatchewan, and he had a food pouch on his, his duty belt. And we're like, what's that for? He's like, treats for my dog. We're like, that is the most ridiculous thing we have ever heard. Who gives treats to a police dog? Because we all had balls and tugs and stuff, right? Like, we have the man rewards, not these little treats in your pouch. Five years down the road, it is all food and treat-based training. 100%, the toys are out. So if there was one thing I would say, uh, I am the only person that feeds my dog. So my dog knows that I am God, and if you want to survive, you will come to me because I have the food. True story. Um, All of the training is done by food incentive. So my dog, who I got at 10 weeks old, Obviously, there's things it has to learn, go up and down stairs, go into a dark closet, go under something, over something, and it was all food reward. If my dog didn't go down the stairs, it doesn't eat that day. By day three, it's hungry enough, it's going to go down the stairs, it's going to get its food, and all of a sudden, it's going to realize that, and I would never ask it to do anything it physically could not do, it's all getting past that mental block. Mm -hmm. And so, I think by four months old, uh, my new dog was going up an eight-foot ladder in the garage because dinners at the top. So I better get up there and have dinner. Right. But it's also um, allowing them to understand how their muscles can work in that coordination in the back end. Right. So all food based, 100 percent food based. Um, and that'll go through all of my training with Edmonton this summer as well. So it's um, yeah, if they do the work, they get fed. And like I said, you never set them up for failure. You're gonna set them up for success, but it's getting past that mental block sometimes. So
1: like I said, just like grade eight. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. You know what? And if you're married, if your wife doesn't feed you, at some point you will vacuum the living room, right? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it might take a day, but that vacuum's coming out for dinner. Yeah. And a so, favorite Mishka story? Oh, so many of them. Um, geez, my favorite Mishka story. I would have to say um geez when i went to the national trials i can't remember what year it was but it was in regina mm-hmm. and we won first overall in the building search and we were the only team to score 100 on it and for those that don't know what a building search is it's a two-story building uh, about the size of home hardware give or take and uh, you're given 15 minutes to clear that building and there's three quarries inside and hopefully you can find them. And uh, I think we did it in about 10 minutes and we scored a hundred and, and won the event. So it was a, it was a good team effort, but it just brought all of the hard training home. So that was a good one she did.
3: Is there like a, an on the street story? I, I know personally as an, an official, I love hearing the officiating stories, the, the policing stories, obviously, if you can't share something with us, that's okay. But is there one particular call or, or series of calls that really stood out with her?
2: You know what, um, I'd say one of our apprehensions um, it was a stolen truck that took off on us, crashed, the driver ran, and uh, I sent her. And by the time I was able to stop my car and send her, bad guy was probably 100 yards away. Um, she got target locked, chased after him, and uh, did the things she was supposed to do. Um, you know, from, from the police dog world, they're supposed to bite and hold until we get there. And... He started fighting her We're in a dark alley, and so I was behind quite a ways. And uh, when I got there, he was poking her eyeballs and pulling her ears, and she just grabbed on and did what she was supposed to do. And so at the end of that call, I was like, ah, that's, that's my girl. She did good. So that was a good one. I, I like that one. That was always a good story. And he got a few stitches for his efforts. So There you go. Yeah. I love that. Last <laughs>
1: one. Heavy hitter. Uh, what does it mean to be a police officer?
2: What does it mean? Wow. Jeez. Um, you know what? I, I It would be too cliche to say that I like to help people. But I do. I, I truly like to help people. I love that there are so many different careers in one career that I get to experience so many things. Um, it is still a profession that people look up to. We get to keep society on the level as best we can. Um, and You know, being able to to provide that service to the community, you know, there's 20,000 people here, whatever we're at now, and there's only 30 of us, and um, it's pretty special that you can go through that application process, get to the point, and at the end of the day, the people that truly need the help are appreciative of us, and and that means a lot. And um, being able to, I guess, uncloak the mystery of the policing world to people is pretty cool sometimes. Um, I do a lot of work with the Kodiaks and, uh, an old player, Matt Wasilenko just got hired last week and he came on a ride along with me. He got hired with Edmonton police and he came on a ride along with me back when he was a Kodiak. Right. So things like that are rewarding. Um, and it's, and I guess if you had to encapsulate it, it's giving back. Right. And, um, you know, sometimes somewhere people give back to us somehow, usually it's to Giving us a donut, but we'll take, take what we can get. So. <laughs> hey, we get apples. You're, you at yeah, least have cars. I mean, there you go. Right. <laughs> so, no, you know, it, it's good. It's, it's rewarding to be able to do the right things um, and help people sometimes change lives, whether it's kids in grade two or grade one and get to see a cop and actually have a good interaction with a policeman because they've been told police are bad their whole lives. Maybe um, being able to help, whether it's at a domestic or a sudden death all those different facets and being able to provide that support to people and being confident with it. It's, it's personally gratifying. Um, We're not like the, the Donald Trump of the world who we're not going to stand on a pedestal and said, we did great. And please tell me that again and again and again, you know, we're, we provide the service and we have to take that self gratification away. So um, yeah, it's good. It's a great career. And I can't imagine myself doing anything else. That's, that's for sure. So,
1: well, it all worked out. Thank God there was no plan B. Hey, so right. Thank totally. you. Thank you so much for your time and your service. And like I said, I think you guys are heroes and thank you for everything you do. Hopefully, this shows a different side to policing to the general public and like, hey, those guys are pretty cool. So, thanks, yeah,
2: Matt. Okay. All right.
0: Okay, that brings us to the end of today's program. Uh, Thank you to Matt, thank you to Dave, and thank you to you, the listener, for sticking it out to the end of the show. Uh, If you liked it, you can find us online. We have our socials in the podcast description. If you wouldn't mind telling a friend, I'd love to see this thing keep on growing. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Yay!